we are more than we think we are. There are levels of our being that are incredibly awesome. And when that is real, once you really experience something of that and not just think about it, your life is changed. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Bill Richards, who's the author of Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences. Bill, thank you for speaking with us today. It's an honor to be part of your program. Dr. Richards is a clinical psychologist at the John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center with training in theology and comparative religion. Earlier in his career, he pursued psychedelic research at Spring Grove Hospital Center and the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center in Baltimore. His graduate education included studies at Yale, Brandeis, Catholic University, and Andover-Newton Theological School and the University of Göttingen. Bill, you have a very interesting combination of specialties and life experiences and education, both from the theological as well as the scientific. Do you find that that's an exception? Well, it's my unique history. I had a long journey through graduate school that many probably viewed as being totally lost and needing direction through philosophy and sociology and psychology and theology and music and whatever. Uh, But from this vantage point, uh, it was all preparing me for what I'm doing right now on the frontier of psychedelic research. So maybe I did know what I was doing. I wonder if you could define a word for us. These substances that have psychedelic qualities to them, entheogens, what does that mean? Let's start with psychedelic. Psychedelics means simply mind manifesting. It doesn't mean tie-dye t-shirts and rose-colored glasses. (laughs) It means exploring, discovering human consciousness. And that opens up to many, many different strata of experiencing. You could see taking a psychedelic drug, a mind-manifesting drug, kind of unlocks the door to all these different types of inner experiences. Now, some of those experiences, not all, but some are what we call entheogenic. They're experienced as sacred of having religious significance. And so the word entheogens was coined to point to those experiences. But there are many psychedelic experiences that are not entheogenic. It's interesting to note that this is not something that came of age with the discovery of LSD, but these are often traditional plants and ceremonies that have been around for millennia. That's right, since at least 500 BC. In an article you wrote, The Potential Religious Significance of Entheogens, you had several commonalities that tend to come out in just about everybody who has this experience. And the primacy of love, not just as a human emotion, you say, but as agape, an ultimate energy at the core of reality. That is quite a statement. That is. Were you perplexed when you saw that this was a 
a common experience. Not perplexed, uh, odd, inspired. And, and it doesn't happen with every psychedelic experience, but it's a characteristic of these profound transcendental experiences. You may know Dante at the end of the Divine Comedy says, it is love that moves the sun and other stars. And perhaps Dante was a natural mystic. He's writing out of his own transcendental glimpses of reality. But that insight often emerges that love isn't just a mushy human emotion, but it's a creative energy at the very core of being. It's the most real thing there is in the universe. So your purpose in in writing, not just publishing scientific research, but calling a book Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences, you see people gaining insight into themselves, into the universe. Yes, both and. It's important for people to understand that there's no such thing as kind of the psychedelic experience. There are many, many different strata of experiencing, from perceptual changes that may be delightful and colorful, but don't have a lot of meaning, to reliving things from childhood, resolving conflicts, you know, the whole realm of ordinary psychotherapy, of becoming more whole in your everyday personality. And those experiences can be incredibly helpful in accelerating psychotherapy, but we usually wouldn't call those spiritual experiences. They're psychological experiences, but incredibly helpful. Then there's what we call the bad trip. There's panic, paranoia, which happens when people aren't adequately prepared or guided. The opportunity awakens and they run away from it and they get scared and confused. And then there's this realm of symbolic archetypal experiences where people have these incredibly awesome visions, if you will, of gods and goddesses and precious stones and ancient civilizations, you name it. Where does that come from? I don't know if you know, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Is it encoded in our genes? Do we access it spiritually, whatever that might mean? But they're reliably reported. Visions of the Christ, of Buddha and Bodhisattvas, Greek gods, you name it. Like they seem to be encoded within us somehow. But then... There's this, what we call, mystical consciousness. And believe it or not, mystical consciousness is becoming a scientific word. You know, you can find it in the Journal of Psychopharmacology now. And that refers to this unitive state of awareness, often uh, preceded by what's described as the death or transcendence of the everyday personality just immersion in a unitive, love-infused, eternal world, and then a rebirth of the everyday self. And that's pretty awesome. What are people looking for, and maybe this would be different depending on the ceremony or the culture, when they enter into and seek an experience like this, what are they hoping for? Probably different people have different motives. 
Some are just curious. They've heard that other people have had amazing experiences and they want to have one too. I hear Bali's a great place to visit. I want to go there too. Sort of uh, mental tourism. That's right. Some people are really suffering with guilt and grief and addictions and depression, and they're really hoping for some resolution of their pain, some healing, some insight, some sense of rebirth. Some people are really looking for deep spiritual insights and answers. What does it mean that we discover ourselves on this little spinning planet for less than 100 years? What's going on here? (laughs) Uh, And they're asking deep questions and looking for answers in a religious, philosophical framework. When people do have some, what they would call a spiritual experience, whether with what they call the divine or the, the essence of life, whatever it might be, is that an interesting experience to have had? Or do you see this actually changing the course of people's lives? Definitely the latter. In fact, it's so hard to put into words. Some people would not even want to say, I had the experience. They'd want to say, the experience had me. In theological language, it comes as a gift, as grace. You know, it's not an accomplishment, the ego. Uh, It's when the ego chooses to unconditionally trust that this experience typically emerges and fills the inner uh, realm of consciousness, if you will. You mentioned someone who might be ill-prepared for the experience and resist it instead of being open to it, maybe having a bad experience. I've been reading about guides, or if this is used as therapy, How does a therapist or a guide assist someone who's going through an experience like this? First of all, we use the psychedelic in a competent way to begin with. We don't just give the drug to someone to see what will happen, okay? If we decide to include someone in one of our research projects, we always prepare the person. And that includes building a bond of trust with the therapist facilitator so you feel safe during the action of the substance. And then there's instruction about kind of how to navigate in that inner world. Two of the big things there are if there's something frightening, scary, dark, threatening, you always go towards it. You don't try to run away from it. Perhaps it's there for a reason. Yeah, that it's it's actually coming to teach you something. But it may be painful. It might be made up of unresolved grief, for example, or guilt, or fear of confronting something you've been avoiding. But when you go towards it, maybe holding the hand of your guide, if you need it, there's resolution. The threatening dragon or monster turns into your father when he was drunk in the middle of the night when you were a child, or the babysitter that attempted to abuse you or did, or it's a collection of your grief and guilt that you've been avoiding. It has meaning. First thing is you always go towards anything that looks threatening. In the ayahuasca traditions in South America, they talk about the great anaconda serpent 
If it appears, what do you do? You dive into its mouth and look out through its eyes. You become the, the anaconda, the kundalini, the psychic force within you. If you run from it, you just get into panic and paranoia. Hmm. You're running away from a mental image that would teach you something, but you're not ready for the lesson. You haven't done your homework. <laughs> That's the essence of the so-called bad trip. The other big point is turning off the intellect to collect these experiences coming in, in an intuitive way, not a thinking, cognitive, rational way. So if you say, stop the world, I have to label you before I can experience <laughs> you, you're going to get into trouble. We teach people to dive in, collect, experience, collect experiences. And then at the end of the day, after the drug wears off, we'll put words on it and decide how to express it. But during the height of the experience, you need to let go of the usual verbal controls and thoughts. This is applying to what we would call a, a moderately high or high dose session, where there's enough drug to open up the transcendental portals of the mind. It's more vivid mental imagery, like a dream at night, but even more clear and profoundly beautiful often. And you see it most clearly with your eyes closed, though if your eyes are open, it might be projected or incorporated into the environment. Interesting also that you say so many report that what they saw was so vivid that it felt more real than their typical everyday existence. That's true. The whole mystery of the relation of the brain to human consciousness and awareness is a huge topic that probably quantum physicists can explore most uh, cogently. Frankly, we don't know what we are yet. And we don't know what the spiritual is, but we do know that it is. People reliably encounter what we call spiritual, transcendental forms of human consciousness. And one aspect of those experiences is that they feel more real, more fundamental than the state of consciousness you and I are in right now. It's what in religious language we call eternity. It's a state of mind outside of time and space, cause and effect. It's something that simply is there. The Buddhists would remind us that it's not only before birth and after death, but it's in the middle of the present moment, if you can really wake up. So it's an experience of enlightenment, if you will, of waking up to the spiritual world that has always been there and always will be, that's independent of time. Have you had the chance to work with or to study people who were perhaps advanced in meditation or a, a practice like this, and then had these experiences, and were they able to compare them? Yes, yes. They would say it's the same world. When that profound level of consciousness becomes dominant in your experiential world, the response of the everyday self, my little Bill Richards, if you will, 
or you're Steve Perry, is simply uh, being awestruck. It's beyond words. It's beyond language. It's beyond all the opposites of human thought. We have these words like uh, death and life and male and female and one and many and time and eternity and so on. And there's a sense of this state of consciousness, including and embracing all. So it's always both and instead of either or. And that makes it very hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. But that that expansive sense of what is seems to grant peace to many people, like a religious mm -hmm. experience. It is a religious experience, as, as far as I'm concerned. We quibble about the meaning of terms. Some people want to get rid of the word religion. They want to say, uh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I think religion's been around a long time, and it's always morphed and changed and grown. Religio is what unites us. I'm one who uh, kind of favors uh, saving the word religion in its many, many forms. All of the great world religions, in a way, have this profound level of revelation, which is the spiritual word for these experiences in common of discovering uh, this eternal world. And we put different words on it. Having studied so many people through this process, is this something that you think, if anyone who was mentally healthy and able and could safely do it with supervision and help, would that change things in the world if everyone had an experience like this? Well, there are many who feel that what's happening in not only the psychedelic world right now, but the meditation wor world, the yoga world, the comparative religion world, is kind of the dawning of some sort of new consciousness or an evolution of, of consciousness. The profound insights of these states uh, the primacy of love, for example, the value of every human being, the interrelationship with nature, if those were more commonly valued and known and respected, we really would have a different world. We wouldn't be killing one another on battlefields anymore. Is that because of the sense of interconnectedness? Yes, that if everyone really is my brother and my sister, if we're what the Hindus call the web of, of maya, the bejeweled uh, net within us in which we are all interconnected, when that becomes not just an intellectual idea, but an experienced reality, and you bring that back to the everyday world, your behavior starts to change. I kill less bugs than I used to, okay? <laughs> you know, when I see a bug in the kitchen, I, my old inclination was just to smush it. You know? Now if I can trap it and let it outside, I will. Mm. Um, there's a reverence for life. That's what Albert Schweitzer talked about, you know? A, a sacredness of life that gradually gets integrated more into daily living, I think. At least there's the potential of that. Mm -hmm. I, think I think we need social units to help 
people apply and integrate the insights that occur in these deep site states. And then I think, my gosh, we got them. We call them churches and synagogues and mosques, mm. where people can take their insights and think about how to apply them in community and in the world. Is there something that you felt was important you learned about yourself or or the world around you that has made a big difference to you through these experiences? One learning is that we are more than we think we are, that the human mind of each of us has potentials, has connections, has other dimensions that we either forget that they're there or we don't know that they're there. So there's a sense of discovering them, remembering them, uh, recapturing them in psychedelic sessions. Uh, the German existentialist Carl Jaspers says, Der Mensch is mehr als er von sich wissen kann, that man, the human being, is more than he knows or ever can know of himself. There are levels of our being that are incredibly awesome. And when that is real, once you really experience something of that and not just think about it, your life is changed. And that's part of the power of this in medical treatment, in treating addictions, for example. When an addict who has an abundance of uh, feelings of guilt and low self-worth, you know, lost relationship, lost jobs, so on, uh, feels isolated, disconnected in the world, when an addict has an experience of that magnitude and he discovers there's resources within his mind, he forgot they were there. He can't pretend to be worthless anymore. That's an interesting phrase. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. He knows better. He can say, well, of course I can get control over my addiction, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or cocaine or narcotics. Yeah, of course, I've got inner resources. I can, I can work with this, you know. People who are depressed, who are stuck in a rut of repetitive thinking, self-doubt, resentments, all of a sudden they break into a bigger world. You know, I've been living in one little dungeon and there's thousands of rooms in this castle. <laughs> you know, I am so much bigger than I thought I was. There are resources within me that I never dared think were there. Mm. It changes the self-concept and the concept of who other people are and even what the nature of reality ultimately may be. I am so thrilled with the time we have here. I wish I could just drop in for a week or so and hear all of your conversations. But where to with this as a society, as a world? What should we be pursuing to learn more about how this can be helpful to people? We need to do a major educational job because a lot of really well-educated people still are influenced by the irrational sensationalism of the 1960s. Psychedelics uh, scramble your brains and make you jump off skyscrapers and have deformed babies, okay? 
we know that's not true. I think psychedelics became kind of a symbol of a lot of cultural change back then. Not only the drugs, but the women's movement and the change in sexual mores and changes in race relations. And there was an awful lot of ferment and change occurring in the 60s and 70s. And uh, psychedelics kind of became a symbol of that, LSD. We now know that there's uh, something profoundly uh, meaningful, helpful, it might help save us from our own self-destruction. I'm very proud that our own federal government in the United States now is financing and supporting some major studies with the positive uses of psychedelics. For example, in uh, their use in uh, nicotine addiction. Think of all the people who die of lung cancer every year. You know, what's the dangerous drug? Is it nicotine or is it psilocybin? Psilocybin is this non-addictive uh, substance that when it's intelligently used can be incredibly helpful to people. And it's often only one experience. It's not something that people want to repeat. Some do now and then. Like you might want to go to the art museum a second time, but, but it's not an addiction like uh, a narcotic addiction or an alcohol addiction. Have you seen or heard people report a change in their understanding or gaining of an understanding of, of the nature of the divine or God or the universe? Yes, uh, but I think many would say the divine is so awesomely multifaceted. In Hinduism, it includes the creator, Brahman, it includes uh, the dancing Shiva, it includes uh, the Kali, dark, scary figure. All the aspects from creation to destruction yes, to rebirth. Right. The, the little everyday self does not understand God. It acknowledges the reality of God. Mm. And even the word God, a lot of people don't like these days. You say God, and they think of sitting on a, a very uncomfortable pew for a long sermon, and they <laughs> don't want anything to do with it, you know? <laughs> uh, so uh, instead of that three-letter word God, some people will say the ground of being, or uh, the nothingness that contains all reality, or uh, Edmund Sinnott at Yale in the Department of Biology used to talk about the purposive properties of protoplasm. You, know? <laughs> you can choose your word, but there is something that is profoundly sacred and eternal within us. And science is bumping into that now. Thanks again to Dr. William Richards from Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. His book from 2018 is called Sacred Knowledge. If you're interested in hearing more from him, he's a guest on Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind series on Netflix. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. It helps spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. 
I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in good faith. <laughs>